Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 117. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Welcome to the holiday season, and welcome back, Scott Calvin. That's right, we are starting to tackle the sequels to the Santa Claus. Naturally, we would start with the Santa Claus 2. Okay, so we talked about the Santa Claus a couple of years ago, a film that is consistently and has been for a long time in my top five to ten. It is my top. Right. So when you say, well, there's a sequel to that movie, you would have thought that we would have jumped all over it. But admittedly, I was not quite as excited about a sequel to The Santa Claus as most people because, you know, there's, there's a, for a lack of a better term, there's a saying that goes around that Hollywood is quote-unquote out of ideas. Right. And I kind of feel like when you're 16 years old and they announce, hey, the Santa Claus 2 is coming out, you sort of just assume that, well, Hollywood ran out of ideas. So then was it more your age that stopped you from seeing this? Or do you think it was more that you were trying to avoid a debacle if they were catching lightning in a bottle a second time. Column A and B. Okay. Uh, it was a little bit of both. I um I mean, I'll I'll put it to you this way. This was the first time that I had sat and watched the movie from start to finish. Same. I don't know that I was avoiding it the way that you were, but I had never seen the whole thing full out. I remember th- when we sat down to watch this it came back to me right away and and it pieced together pretty quickly, but I had never seen the whole thing. No, I had seen a half an hour here, 15 minutes there, 20 minutes there, just like catching bits and pieces of it on television. But I was never motivated enough to like sit and watch it full out. And <laughs> I hate to say it, but I was never motivated enough to even go like to the video store and spend $3 to rent it. Right, because there's a lot to lose. This is... $3 is a lot to lose. <laughs> no, but I'm saying the Santa Claus is my favorite, yeah. favorite holiday movie. Yes. Followed very closely by Home Alone. But this is at the top for me. Um, so, yeah, for me, in that regard, there was a lot, not $3, but there was a lot to lose as far as it being ruined. Yeah, it's more than the three bucks, but Especially you know Especially because saying. they did get the whole cast back. Yeah, they which brought is great. the whole band back together. The question is, is it a suitable sequel? Does it hold up to the first film? We're going to answer those questions right now. While Santa Claus is busy preparing for Christmas, Charlie is busy getting into big trouble at school, landing himself on the naughty list. Not only does Scott learn about Charlie, but he also learns about the quote-unquote Mrs. Claus, stating that he must be married by Christmas Eve or else he can no longer be Santa. All the while, the desantification process has begun. He's losing weight. He's losing his beard. His hair is no longer white. It's starting to turn back into its natural darker color. I mean, it 
what else do you want me to tell you? It's the desantification process. In an attempt to be in two places at once, Curtis, one of the elves, creates a toy duplicate of Scott who can keep the elves working while Scott finds a wife and works on setting Charlie straight. Before leaving the North Pole, Bernard gives Santa, or Scott Calvin, a watch that monitors how much Christmas magic he has left and warns that if he uses it all up, he won't be able to return to the North Pole. Upon arriving back home, Scott, Laura, Neil, and Charlie all meet with the very unmarried Principal Newman, Carol Newman, to discuss Charlie's recent bad behavior. And after Charlie promises to no longer act out, Scott abruptly ends the meeting. Back at the North Pole, Toy Santa reviews the Santa Claus handbook. Meanwhile, Scott tells Laura, Neil, and Charlie about the predicament that he's in, and they start to see that the desantification process has begun, and it continues as he's literally telling them about it. After a failed date, Scott discusses his failed date with Charlie, and he sees that Charlie is maturing and that he is very confused. Toy Santa, meanwhile, wishes to review the Naughty and Nice list since it clearly states in the handbook that it is a rule, and he likes to follow the rules. After Charlie vandalizes school property, this now being the second time, Scott convinces Principal Newman to let Charlie do community service to avoid a suspension, but she expects Scott to be present with Charlie the day that the community service is to commence. At the North Pole, Toy Santa reviews the list and finds that Scott has been too lenient and wants to give out more coal than usual. He also begins to duplicate toy soldiers to build an army. Yes, I'm, this is a thing. To overtake the elves. Scott, meanwhile, uses some of his Christmas magic to impress Principal Newman who he has started to take a liking to. And we soon find out that the feeling is mutual. Toy Santa, meanwhile, has shut down toy production and unleashed his army to produce nothing but coal to deliver to the children of the world on Christmas Day. While throwing snowballs at Newman's house, Charlie finds his father spending time with her much to his dismay. Inside the house, Scott tells Newman that he is Santa, but she does not believe him, and she kicks him out. While arguing back at their home, Charlie tells Scott that he is tired of living a life that is filled with lies because he can't tell anybody who his father really is. So Scott tells Charlie that his time as Santa is seemingly over, but Charlie really doesn't care. Curtis escapes the North Pole on a jetpack and tells Scott what Toy Santa has done. Having used up all of his magic, Scott uses the Tooth Fairy to fly back to the North Pole. He summons him by... Actually, he went to go pull a tooth out, but his niece slash ex-wife's new child loses a tooth and this mythical creature who he has a relationship with shows up to leave money under the pillow and he flies back to the North Pole 
basically using the Tooth Fairy as transportation. I know this all sounds weird, but trust me, it makes sense. It makes total sense. Um, Charlie, meanwhile, that's the one thing about this movie. There is a lot of back and forth. We'll talk about this in a minute. Charlie, meanwhile, tells Newman that Scott really is Santa, and he shows her his snow globe from the first movie, leading her to believe what Scott has told her. Scott and Curtis are captured by Toy Santa, who is setting out to deliver his coal. Charlie and Newman arrive after hitching a ride with the Tooth Fairy again, and they set the elves free. Scott then hitches a ride on Chet, a reindeer in training to pursue Toy Santa. The elves take down the toy soldiers, while Scott takes down Toy Santa. Scott and Newman get married, and once he becomes Santa Claus again, he sets off to deliver his gifts to the children of the world. You know, before we sat down to record, Sean said to me, eh, the plot's not really that involved. It's not. The plot is not all that involved. Where the plot gets a little packed, for a lack of a better term, where it gets a little uh, confusing is that there is a lot of back and forth between the North Pole and we'll call it St. Paul because I think that's where they I think that's where they live. I think it's St. Paul, Minnesota, because that's what it says on Scott's watch. And you have real Santa and toy Santa. So there's just so much back and forth that on paper, this seems a lot more confusing than it actually is. There's a lot going on, which I think is a good jumping off point for us because they this feels like a natural extension of the first one, I think. Yes. But they added enough where it keeps it interesting. And... I'm not going to get too far ahead and, and you know, state whether or not I think it holds up or not. But I think as far as what you said as Hollywood is out of fresh ideas, it's not the case here. It's not the case here. And what works out of the shoot is that they have the quote unquote Mrs. Claus because everybody knows that there's a Santa and there's a Mrs. Claus for those who celebrate the holiday. So I think... There were, and, and honestly, like when we reviewed the first movie, I never said, well, he's a divorcee and there's no Mrs. Claus. And I could have like lived my entire life not having questioned that. But the fact that they use this as a reason to make a sequel really does make sense because I know for a lot of people that's a question that they needed answered. Oh, it's brilliant. I think they used it to their advantage in the first one as far as... Um you know, that anybody can be Santa and and that you take a divorced single father trying to relate to his child and turn him into Santa Claus. That that's what was so brilliant. Um, And here they totally play off of that. Santa and Mrs. Claus are always the pair. Right. So you sort of answer the question. Well, all right. Scott has now filled these shoes what about Mrs. Claus? What happens? Do you need to push her off a roof in order to get a Mrs. Claus here? Um, so I think that was a really smart choice, compounded with the fact that Scott is a divorcee and, you know, he does struggle with commitment and, and having a partner. Um, I think that that was a really good 
premise. Dialing back a little bit, though. Sure. I love how this film starts with the security breach to the North Pole being exposed. Yeah, I think, I mean, the CGI is just terrible. Um, When you get to the practical sets, they're great. And obviously you see that it's a huge cast when you see all of the elves. I think it's more so, I mean, it's a bigger cast than even in the first film. But I think you're right. I've kind of always wondered, like, as a child, knowing that Santa lives at the North Pole, how how is he never infiltrated? So the whole idea that they go to... Elfcon 1, Elfcon 2, and that they kind of live, it's it's kind of Wakanda. Like, it's the North Pole version of Wakanda because it's like a big, like, snow globe that keeps them covered. And really, if you're on a plane, you sort of just fly over, you don't see them, and you don't think anything about it. Right, and we did sort of see that in the first one when Scott first lands at the North Pole. It's just the pole, and then it it drops him down into Santa's workshop. And I've said, and I will die on this hill, that this is the best depiction of Santa's workshop in in any film ever. Um, But I like that they sort of toy with that idea of like yeah what happens if there is a flyover and what I what I really appreciate and I think this starts to play into again what you were saying is it worth it to do the sequel is it a fresh idea is we start to see that Scott has really grown into this role of Santa Claus oh my and not just in the sense yeah not just in the sense of like okay he's got now we're eight years removed he's got eight years under his belt he knows the job but, um, you know, in the, in the f- original, he really struggles with giving up his normal life Very to fill the role of Santa. But now we see him fully taking charge of the situation. He doesn't need to rely on Bernard anymore, who I'm very glad that we got back, yes. by the way, because a lot of the other elves changed. But I'm glad that they kept Bernard in his seat as the head elf. Yeah, I, I love that. I love how they've introduced this Curtis character. We'll talk about him in a little while. The only thing, though, is that, like, how does Curtis not see this? Because the whole setup is that um, there's a plane that's flying over that kind of pings them because they hear Christmas music. Well, first they hear the elves working in, like, the worst working scene that you've ever seen where they're just kind of, like, banging Banging hammers on things where it's like you would not bang that hammer on that toy. It's literally like Kirby in Rudolph. Exactly. It's got that same, like, claymation look to it. Herbie. 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 He wants to be a dentist. Yes. But it's the same sort of look where they're kind of just like, I have a fire truck and I'm just going to bang on the passenger side door with a hammer because I'm working on it. And that's how you know I'm working on it. And that's how you make a toy. But more so egregious than that is how they've got lights and, and flashers going and alarms. And somehow Curtis sees none of this. Here's that, that I mean, that is the most egregious part about the scene. Oh, I mean, listen, the scene's great. I'm not going to shred it apart that much, but that's that's one of the few times where I've watched this movie and I'd be like, oh, it makes no sense. And unfortunately, it's within like the first five minutes. So if you are one of these people, 
like I was at 16 that said, they're out of ideas, and you shut the movie off, this is unfortunately where the movie starts to lose you if you're not going to give the movie a fair shake. Right, and I buy into the different levels of security and everything. You know, they're at a code orange, a yellow, a red, um, because the elves always were techie. Like, in the original they develop the tinsel that breaks the bars that eventually gets Scott out of jail. Yeah. So I will totally buy into this security system. Um, it's just the fact that, and, and where they find Curtis, he's in the sleigh and it's like this open air garage. With a bunch of elves that are not trying to stop him, mind you. Right. So of course the sound is going to travel out. I would have bought it into it more if he was, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe buried in the kitchen where they're baking and he's just munching on some cookies, not paying attention or something sure. like that. Um, that that took me out of it a little bit. But I do like the Curtis character. Yeah, so do I. What I don't like initially, initially, and I want to I want to discuss this as we I'm going to revisit this as we get closer to the end of the film. I don't think what they do with Charlie works initially I want initially is the key word here upon first viewing I really did not like where this was going I keep going back and forth on this whole Charlie situation I understand what they're doing with the character but I feel like like the troublemaker aspect okay fine but I feel like this is too extreme and it's very uncharacteristic of him because in the beginning he felt like his dad never had enough time for him. And they do a wonderful job of setting that up. I actually I, I had gone back and listened to our review of the Santa Claus because that wasn't last year. That was from two years ago. Right. It was from the first year of Monorail Radio. It w had been a minute since... I, I mean, I watch this movie every year, but... We don't go and listen to our own show on repeat. Right, and it had been a minute since we actually sat down to discuss it. And you and I actually spent a lot of time talking about what a great setup it was that Scott Calvin was this sort of befuddled dad trying his best. He's work-obsessed, but he's still trying to relate to his kid and give him a good Christmas. So... We've already seen from Charlie that he wants his dad's attention. I feel like, especially because he so embraced his dad as Santa Claus and and he loved that he had this secret and, and the relationship that he eventually got with Scott. I feel like this is just going way too far to the other side. And like, when did you learn to repel? Yeah, I mean, it's very against the grain. Right. When you think about the relationship that they have together and just for the character, because I mean, I, I understand now he's an adolescent. He's in a very confusing time in his life. But Charlie was such a cute kid in the first yes. movie. So for them to make this shift initially, initially, I can't stress that word enough. It's very off putting. Plus. You know that he worked out his relationship with Scott in the original, but you've also got a very caring mother and Neil in his life. You really think Dr. Neil, even though his head comes to a point, was going to allow Charlie to become such a wayward kid? Yes. 
because I don't think Charlie, here's the thing, Charlie, his relationship, and now we're, now we're going back to the mid-90s, Charlie's relationship with Neil as the movie goes on becomes very different. As he's starting to sort of mend the fence with Scott, he's starting to separate himself from Neil because I think that he very much, I think he loves Neil. I, I, they have, for, for a, a family that has been through a divorce and now you have this new father figure in your life, I mean, I think that Charlie loves Neil. I think that there is a mutual respect there, but you do see that he starts to gravitate more towards Scott as Scott is more accepting of the idea of being Santa Claus. So I do, it's not that I think Neil's going to let this happen, but it would make sense to me that Charlie, as he's becoming rebellious, is starting to separate himself from Neil because he's already starting to gravitate more towards Scott. And I think that he does not respect or appreciate the fact that he's telling the truth in the first movie, and it's an unbelievable truth that his father is Santa Claus. And that Neil not only does not believe him, but tries to use his practice and his theory to rationalize why why Charlie is lying about this. Almost to use it against Charlie. Correct. So the fact that there is a wedge in that relationship, presumably, actually does make a lot of sense. It does, but at the same time, it's eight years later. Charlie has already worked out his daddy issues, and now he's got a half-sister. So you would think that out of respect for that, not that he's necessarily obeying everything that Neil says. I, I guess I just expected him to be acting out against Neil again, not graffitiing up the school. True. And and then he gets caught in the act, which, by the way, what principal I is had there? That, I had this exact so note. late or in the early a.m. I had this exact note. Why was that not a security guard? That was very much a trope, though, especially yeah. in the 90s, that. Teachers just lived at school. Oh, they do that throughout this entire film, not just with the principal, but it they totally fall into that 90s trope of the teachers have no lives outside of school. Like, I would expect this from Mr. Feeney, but not here. Right. Um, back to Santa's workshop for a moment here. The slow de-Santa process is Brilliant. great. I, and I love that they that they incorporated this because... I felt that it kind of raised the stakes because not only does he not want to lose being Santa, but he also has to stop this process from happening because it literally happens at any given moment and it can happen in front of an audience. Right. And aside that they're mandating that he find a Mrs. Claus, it's not just about the timeline of finding her by Christmas Eve there's actually a serious consequence if he doesn't do it. Yeah. I love the fact that Charlie ends up on the naughty list. I think that it adds another layer of depth to this movie. And it also, it's kind of the Christmas pun without being too punny, right? And I don't think they meant for the Charlie Sheen joke to not... Not, you know, I, I felt like they must have thought that was going to age out eventually. But Charlie Sheen no. has made has made it that that joke is always funny. I, I don't know. Our congratulations in order. 
Thank it's you a for timeless ahead. joke. <laughs> it's a timeless joke now no. that Charlie's on the naughty list. She and I thought he worked himself out. <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of things that do date this movie, but that is actually not one of them. Um, yeah, no, and I, I agree with you. As far as Charlie being on the naughty list, um, again, it raises the stakes. It's not just that Scott has to find love by Christmas Eve. Now he's also being called away to go deal with this. The only thing I do have to say, though, this sort of violates the original a little bit because the whole thing with the Santa Claus was that Scott Calvin had to find a way to balance his new job with his old life. And he was going to figure out how to do both. And when he first inherits the list, Bernard said report back by Thanksgiving. So I think we can make the the assumption here that Scott is taking the job so seriously he wants to be at the North Pole and make that his home base and bop back down to St. Paul for argument's sake when he needs to. But that's the only thing that deviates from the original is that he could still be living at home close to Charlie if he wanted to and then reporting back for his busy time of year. Yes, but I didn't question that because tradition states that Santa lives at the North Pole. Sure. So you're you're not wrong. It does violate the first movie, but of all of the things that this does different from the first, I feel like this is one of the things that you kind of overlook just based on the folklore that is Santa Claus. I mean, I guess, too, that's what they are trying to address is that Maybe it's not about making Santa work into your everyday anymore. It's that you're the big guy now. This has to be your whole life. The adjustment is gone. Right. And that's also why he has to get married. This is your life now. Let's talk about the meeting of the mythical beings. Oh, my God. So brilliant. Not only brilliant because you have the Tooth Fairy and Father Time and the Easter Bunny. You've got great cameos here. Peter Boyle, who was... Uh, Scott's boss in the first film is Father Time. Kevin Pollock is uh, Cupid. Cupid. And then the Tooth Fairy is Art LaFleur, who a lot of kids will remember was Babe Ruth in The Sandlot. Great And we cameo. just talked about him when we reviewed First Kid. Yeah, and he was in First Kid. Um, great cameos here. And Aisha I- Tyler as... Um- as uh, Mother Earth. Right. I just love... Mother Nature. Mother Nature. But I love how they tied all of these mythical beings together and put them in one setting. And this was something that we had talked about a lot in the original, and I don't want to spoil too much right now, but it's not just a great scene. They deliver on it later on. Yes, they do. Which is where... The, the screenwriters are just so brilliant. They can take throwaway lines and things that you think are just going to happen for a fun scene, but they always pay them off in the end. Right. So I want to talk about Toy Santa because I know that if, like, eventually we sit there and we talk about characters later on. But this is sort of a weird in-between because it's... It's a new character, but it's not because it's just a duplicate of Scott Calvin. I love the look. I love his humor. I love the fact that he is literal. He is by far the best part about this movie. 
I agree. I don't think that this was a stretch at all. I think it's totally believable. Like I had said before, the elves, well, the elves, but elf was the acronym for their for their tech branch where yes. they, they put the cookie and the cocoa into the sleigh. And like I said, with the tinsel. So the fact that this got developed is not coming out of left field at all. Um, I totally buy into it. But this is just such a brilliant idea. Clearly, Tim Allen had a lot of fun with this. Yes. And in a way, I feel like it's almost a spoof of Buzz Lightyear. So I think he's totally poking fun at himself here. You do, And you do get the sad, uh, sad, strange little man line later on in the movie. But I think you're right. He's sort of playing this the way that Buzz is so literal in the first movie. You kind of get that here. And I felt... I mean, I felt that David Cromholtz was great. Like, they were both great coming back, but I think Tim Allen does play a dual role here, and he pulls it off very well. It's interesting because it's almost like Tim Allen is playing the Woody figure because he has to harness this this toy. Right. And he has to put him in his place that he is, in fact, a toy. Yeah. Um, I do have to say, though, I miss angry, sarcastic Bernard. Because I feel like here he's just like, yes, Santa, whatever you want. He's such a yes man. And I get that it's eight years later. I get that their relationship has developed and that there is a friendship now. But I miss the curmudgeon. That was the whole character. I agree. But I first off, I love that there's growth in their relationship. But I don't think you could have literal Santa Claus who wants to give coal to the entire world with a curmudgeon elf. I think it would have been too much. I I agree with that, but I feel like Bernard lost the curmudgeon before we even get to Toy Santa. I mean, he is butting heads with Curtis quite a bit, but I feel like he's so... He lost the re- the relationship with Scott a little bit, and now he's just a yes man to Scott. Where the fun in their relationship was that it was love hate. I don't know. I I disagree. I feel like their relationship is stronger in this movie because now they're both on the same page. It's supposed to be, but I kind of miss Bernard putting him in his place. You know what I didn't miss? Neil's sweaters, <laughs> and they're back. They are back and in force, and and you see it when um, they put Scott in one of Neil's sweaters because now Scott has come back to St. Paul. We're just going to call it St. Paul because that what, that's what the watch says. And Charlie at one point has a toque on, for our friends in Canada, a toque, and it has the Minnesota Gophers colors, so it's St. Paul, Minnesota. He comes back, and they're trying to set him up on a date, which I want to talk about in a minute. He comes back for the meeting with the principal. Right, when Charlie's in trouble. And he doesn't have anything to wear because he wears clothes from the North Pole, and they put him in Neil's sweater. And Brilliant. Laura lets him take the minivan, and he goes, I'm going to take this crocheted sweater and a minivan in my date. I'll see you in eight minutes. What a great line. But like, there's a lot of adult humor in this movie. I think at times even more so than in the first movie. So I really started to get into this movie at this point as we're kind of like rolling on here. But some great screenwriting. But oh my God, I love that they did not write the sweaters out of this. 
Same. And I love that Laura and Neil are like his wingman and woman now. Yes. That they're trying to help him. They're all working together. I mean, you knew once Neil realized that Scott was Santa Claus, he was kissing Scott's butt all through the first one. And yep. he just wants to, everything is, okay, big guy. He just wants to be best friends with him so bad. But I really liked that not only has Scott sort of passed the torch, he totally recognizes that they are their own family unit at this point, that Charlie's got a younger sister, that he is so good to Charlie's sister. Yeah. And and he's Uncle Scott to her now. I, I just love how they're all working together. I think that that was a good, a really smart way to show growth. Agreed. The date. Oh, we have to talk about this. Aside from that he goes out in the ugly sweater. I love that they showed this and it wasn't just a montage of horrible dates that they actually zeroed in on one of them. You've seen this in Sarah Marshall. You've seen this in any movie where you have the multitude of bad dates. Exactly. Here, they just have the one. We get a great bit part with Molly Shannon and Who is just so Molly Shannon, by the way. She totally is. Here's where the movie gets slightly dated for two seconds, but I don't even care. She remixes Shania Twain's Man, I Feel Like a Woman with her own Christmas lyrics. I think the character's brilliant, that she's Christmas obsessed. So you think she's going to fall for Scott right away because he is Father Christmas. Uh, but she is just so awkward. It doesn't matter what song she's singing. The awkwardness holds up. I think some people are not going to find it as funny if they don't know the Shania Twain that song. That was going to be my question. So, but but it's forgivable because she's just so awkward and it makes up for it. Well, my question was going to be more about Molly Shannon than it was about the Shania Twain song because nothing, I love Molly Shannon, but I feel like the song, I feel like a woman, is more timeless than Molly Shannon is. Oh, Wow. I I feel like a like a fifteen year old or a sixteen year old now hears and they know the song, but if I showed them Superstar, they're not going to find it funny. So the the question now becomes the question now becomes is Molly Shannon a product of her time? Because a lot of those I've talked about the zany movies of the mid nineties are very much products of their time. I, I don't think that you can make Dumb and Dumber now. I know they made the sequel, and that was now got to be almost 10 years ago. And it, it, it works for our generation, but I don't think a new generation is going to watch it and find it nearly as entertaining. I totally disagree. I think the song And is... I love Shannon. I love Molly Shannon. It's not a shot against her. I'm just curious to get your idea here or to no, get your thought. I disagree. I think that the song is what dates it. I don't know that people are going to necessarily recognize it. I think, um, oh God, what was that other song? And it escapes me now. But it, it was like every at everybody's wedding song. Forever and for always. Yes. Um, I think that's the timeless Shania song. I think there have been too many girl power anthems since then, like Kelly Clarkson and Beyonce where the song might get lost in translation. But I think regardless of whether or not you know Molly Shannon from SNL, you're going to know her from the Grinch movie. So to me, it just might be like, she might fall into a category of being Christmas obsessed. And I think that's more relatable than the song is. 
I guess. And I she's guess. got, she's got, not only, this is where they knock it out of the park with this movie. Not only is she wearing a Santa, a Santa sweater, it is Scott's it's picture. Scott's picture. It's not like a knit of Santa. It is literally Scott's picture screen printed on her shirt. I love that. That's brilliant. I love that almost as much as I love the fact that when Scott shows up at the community service that Charlie is doing, a child approaches him. Yes. Okay, because a child still sees him as Santa Claus, even though the desantification process is well on its way. It's almost full effect. The beard is fully gone. The hair is darker. Most of the weight is lost. In fact, I think almost all of the weight had been lost at that point. He's still got like a little pot belly. But she still sees him as Santa Claus, and he plays along with it. He doesn't try to hide it. I think this, it's understated, but I think... It's one of the best scenes in this movie. It it pays off on the ridiculous notion that because Charlie has detention that Scott has to be there too. Which, by the way, Principal Newman should have been named Karen, not Carol. <laughs> yes. But we're going to talk about Newman. Well, actually, no. I want to talk about Newman for a second. The broken home backstory. It's fine, but I feel like it's badly overplayed and i think it was overplayed when this movie came out and it totally drags because once he realized that she's not the uptight principal and he does take her out on the date they're in the sleigh ride and i feel like that scene goes on forever i think that it does i don't think it's the actress's fault i think the fact that they're just doing this this storyline again we've seen it so many times this is not enough of a reason for her to be so miserable i'm sorry it's just not because she goes on to say that the only time she was happy as a child was at christmas time but they're trying to set her up to be this like grinchous character it just doesn't make any sense so she's a grinch now but she loved it as a kid when it was when her life was bad the only thing good about it was christmas like she should have been she should have loved christmas even more right and it was also when she was a young child too much time has passed where you're holding on to that much anger but it took so long to expose all of that so between revealing her backstory and scott you know, going off on these tangents of, well, no, you you did that as a child, but here's what the reindeer really want. And here's what Santa really does. You know, she doesn't even start to put the pieces together where she's catching on. So for that much, it was sort of wasted dialogue. But between giving us her childhood and then all of the magic that Scott expends to to take her on this date. When he knows he shouldn't be expending it, mind you. Right, because then it, he uses, I think, like seven. He uses a lot. He, he uses, only has... Yeah, I think it was... I think he went from a nine to a two, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. Um, I just feel like this takes way too long. But where the scene redeems itself is that when she says that she stopped believing... She says that her parents told her to, quote unquote, grow up. I love that. I do, too. I think that was so clever. And I don't want to say too much more about it in case there are children listening. But I love that that's how it was presented instead of stop believing. It was very delicate. And 
see, that redeems it for you. What redeems all this for me is the faculty party. Yes. The scene with the bad music, bad food, bad wardrobe, bad everything. Those boring teachers who have no life and have no fun. I love how the scene opens where he's like, this is a great party. That guy actually moved. I I am dying to know, and I was trying to look it up, I'm dying to know how much Tim Allen improvised during the scene. Because there's a lot where I feel like was just straight stand-up. Yeah, it was, and, and very much his humor. Like, obviously, you know who's going to be playing Santa in the movie, so you can hire screenwriters that can write a script for the actor. But just knowing what his brand of humor is and knowing how he can fly off the cuff because you've seen it now. I mean, he's been relative, uh, relevant for 30 years up up to this point in time. Just kind of knowing how he is, it does seem like he improved quite a bit. What I really love about the scene, too, is that it captures the magic of the first one that no matter how old you are, when Santa gives you the toy that you always asked for... It, it just captured that magic all over again. And I think that's why in this scene, he and Newman were not supposed to work, but they do. Yes. So here's the thing. Like, I don't love Carol Newman's backstory, but I buy the two of them together. And I do like the layer of the onion that it peels back and the drama that it reveals, knowing what her broken relationship is with Charlie, because... He is such a misbehaved youth, and she is his principal. Like, I just felt like this... At first, like, that's it. At first, I thought, oh, God, not her. But as the movie played on, I was like, no, I want it to be her. Like, it just made so much sense. Yeah, at first, I really thought she was going to be the antagonist, and I really thought she was going to stand in Scott's way of trying to help Charlie before you start to catch on that she is going to be the love interest. I mean, I certainly didn't think the the love interest was going to be Molly Shannon, but I really wasn't expecting it to come from her. But I think it it was a pleasant surprise. If you had asked me 10 or 15 minutes into the movie, I would have said no way. By this point, it is a pleasant surprise. No, and what's truly amazing, it's it, it's a testament to the actress. I hated her in Lost. Could not stand her, but I love her in this. You know what else I love? Dictator Santa. <laughs> the fact that Toy Santa literally becomes a dictator, Brilliant. I'll be honest with you, I don't think they could make this movie nowadays. So we'll ask that question, does the movie hold up? But... It's not just the way that he behaves. They change his outfit. That I was not expecting. That was startling. And because I'm not an overly sensitive person, I found it to be hilarious. Especially when he presents now an army of toy soldiers that he made. That was very March of the Wooden Soldiers for me. Yeah. I don't care. Listen, you all loved our review of Babes in Toyland. You're still listening to it. I don't quite know why. But you, you go watch March of the Wooden Soldiers if you want to watch the better movie. I said it then and I'll say it now. And that's sort of what it, what that reminded me of. But not to the point where it was a ripoff. I felt like how many Christmas movies do a spoof, not just Christmas movies, but films in general, that do a spoof of It's a Wonderful Life? And like by now it's played out. This was just subtle enough where it made sense for this movie. It tipped that cap to March of the Wooden Soldiers, but it felt like its own idea. Putting him in that outfit totally twisted the knife. Absolutely. 
Now we get old Charlie back. Okay, I love that old Charlie comes back. And you know what? Where I said initially Charlie Maker or a troublemaker Charlie didn't work. When you get to the scene where Charlie is is breaking down and he's crying it's and he's so good. It's so good. It is so good. And it's such a powerful scene where he says, you know, my friends at school can sit there and say, my father's a policeman and my father's this and my father's that. My father's the best thing in the world and I can't tell anyone about it. All of a sudden, like, the movie comes to a halt and they, where they do a great job is they give it a little bit of breathing room where you as the viewer can take in what he said and go, oh, yeah, that's got to be really difficult. I can't imagine being in his position. Yeah, and at this point, where I was getting hung up on Charlie, we've already seen you have your daddy issues. Why are you acting out? Clearly, this is a cry for attention, and you know that the bigger the bigger the act, the more attention it's going to get from your father. And I was kind of rolling my eyes because it's like you you have the the globe that Bernard gave you if you want to call him back. You don't need to go to these lengths to get his attention. But it's not just as far as having his father present in his life. It is the burden of the secret that he's keeping. And that's exactly it. It's a total gut punch for the audience where you're like, oh, damn. Yeah. And you now we go back to relating to Charlie. How much did you love the fact that he uses that snow globe to show Newman the truth of his father's identity? I go back and forth with them, actually. I think when Scott comes clean to Carol, um, I I buy into that. Um, I mean, that totally makes sense that she's not going to believe him. Right. And I like that she really uses it against him because she says that he has commitment issues and she's like, I opened up to you. And now you, she actually says that you're acting like a mental patient with what you're telling me because right. you're just afraid to commit. So I'll buy into all of that. Here's where I kind of go back and forth um, because I feel like they could have waited until the end to reveal it to Carol and maybe just done some big elaborate proposal instead of cluing her in at this point because I feel like when she gets to the North Pole, I'm getting a little bit ahead here, but when she gets to the North Pole, I feel like Charlie and Bernard, because they were always buddies, they could have totally handled everything themselves. I felt that they could have. Yeah, I'll give you that. That makes sense. With that being said, though, I love our path to get back to the North Pole. I love that, as we were talking about earlier on, the meeting of the mythological creatures comes full circle when Scott actually has to enlist the help of the tooth fairy to get back home uh -huh. um, because uh, Curtis had come to save him, but he destroys the jetpack and Scott has Comet with him, but Lucy has been feeding Comet treats and now he is too heavy. To Can't fly him we home. haven't talked about Comet enough yet. Um, I, I think it's hysterical that he's the last resort and he can't actually deliver on it. The animatronic is still great, by the way. What's not great is the Jar Jar Binks voice, but I can overlook that because of how Comet and Scott's relationship has developed in this movie. 
I can appreciate the fact that they communicate with each other, but yeah, the whole the the Jar Jar thing is just a little too much. The real brilliance to me is that once Scott does get back to the North Pole is that Charlie employs the same method and actually pulls his own tooth so that he can have the tooth fairy get him back to the North Pole to yes. help his father. Amazing. Right, and he takes he takes Carol with him. But that's where I'm like, we don't really need her there. Mm. But she's got to be there so that he can marry her, so that he can be Santa Claus. So she kind, so she has to be there. They had to get her there some way. This is where everything sort of starts falling apart for the me. The end of this movie kind of it does unravel a little bit. Right. I kind of wish that. Scott had resolved the issue of the North Pole and they had taken down Toy Santa and the toy, toy soldiers first. And then once he does that, there's like a slight breather and it's like, oh no, I still need my Mrs. Claus. And and then he goes to propose to her and then maybe he proves himself that he's Santa and figures out a way, whether it's showing up in the sleigh or delivering the toys or whatever the case may be, I wish he proved it himself instead of had Charlie go fight the battle for him. Mm-hmm. Even though I do appreciate Charlie being redeemed in her eyes from being a troublemaker, um, I don't know that he needed to bail Scott out in that regard. Well, and I think that the whole end of this movie is sort of abrupt right their engagement is abrupt charlie's redemption is abrupt even when he defeats toy santa it's sort of abrupt like not that it necessarily needed to drag on for very long but it kind of just seemed like we did a really good job getting to this point but oh the movie's an hour and 45 minutes long and we just got to get to the end and i kind of feel like in the last 10 minutes they rush to the end of the movie I would have even preferred, just because Neil is so desperate to be Santa's BFF, if Charlie had taken him back to the North Pole and Neil was, you know, like a major, a major player in taking down toy Santa. I would have preferred anything to what we do get, which is the battle in the sky on the sleigh and and Scott riding Chet, who's a reindeer in training to take down the rest of them. Yeah. I feel like that whole thing was weak sauce. I, I agree. The whole Chet thing, I could kind of... I'm sorry, but Chet is not one of Santa's reindeer. You've never heard of Chet. I understand they introduced this character. I'm interested to see if he plays any role at all in the third movie. I mean, I guess they've done a pretty good job of tying everything. Because I've never... Uh, admittedly, I've never seen the third movie. Um, I I think that... They've done a nice job of tying everything back in, but you're right. I mean, this to me is sort of a... I think that Chet is the weakest part of this movie, actually. I agree. And it's not, in... To me, it's not funny. It's not entertaining. I know, but like a six-year-old probably think, thinks that Chet is hysterical, but I, don't, I just don't see it. Right. And, and that was what we loved so much about the first one. And up until this point, the second one does a great job of as well is that it delivers on everything, whether it's a scene that you don't think is going to be important or a throwaway line. It, they managed to bring everything full circle. The other point that I think is really weak, his proposal is just awful where you've got. Is it? I keep forgetting. Is it Judy? Did they recast Judy, it's or not this is Judy. a different one? It's a Judy. It's a Judy remake, and not as good. And she's feeding him his proposal lines. Yeah. Why? 
he doesn't even have the same relationship with her that he did with Judy. Not that she we know She brings him cocoa. Yeah. And that's it. And I don't know how long it took her to perfect her recipe. I know. I miss Judy. She was the one thing that I really missed in this movie. And that's where it would have been totally appropriate if she was feeding the proposal lines because they had that joke in the first one where um, he says she's cute or he likes the sparkles on her cheeks. And And she's like seeing someone in rapping. Yes. And that's where this would have been totally appropriate that now she's giving him love advice. I know. I don't know why they didn't. Because even if you couldn't get the same act- actress, you could have recast the role. The fact that they just didn't call even her use her just makes no sense. Um, let's talk about a couple of other characters here and whether they make sense or not, starting with Curtis. Okay? I mentioned it before. I love Curtis with Bernard. I think that Curtis, who is played by Spencer Breslin... Any relation to Abigail? Probably. I don't know. I was curious, and I meant to look that up, and I didn't. I will look into that. Yes. Yeah, it's the uh, he is the older brother. I thought so. They kind of look alike. They they got that Culkin thing going. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, so th- th- they're related. I liked him. I thought he was... Actually, I thought he was really good. I did, too. I think he's a great foil to Bernard. Um, I I like the constantly pushing the envelope as far as what they're willing to do with Toy Santa. Uh, and I and I like that he sort of plays the hero at the end when he goes to get Scott. Yeah, and I like the fact that he redeems himself because he's very much on board with Toy Santa and following the rules and working with him until he realizes that he really is out of control. That was a great point, too, was uh, when Toy Santa is like, we're, we're not doing everything according to the book. And I think that also relates back to Scott's characters. He's going to do what works. Right. Whether or not it's in the rule book or not. Yeah. Elizabeth Mitchell plays Carol um, Newman. So uh, I, here's a problem. I mentioned her backstory before. I think that because of the backstory and because they they spend so much time building to a relationship, but they don't give it breathing room and they rush the engagement, that it takes us too much time to like the character and to believe in the character. I don't think she's a bad character. I like Elizabeth Mitchell in the role. I think the character is good. It's that they just didn't give that character enough breathing room. I like her arc as far as being the uptight principal who eventually learns to let loose. But what I really wish is, like I said, I don't know that you needed her at the North Pole, but instead of Charlie spelling it out, I sort of wish that she had either come to the realization on her own or because of something that Scott did, or maybe that Charlie hinted at Scott's identity. I wish she had come to terms with it herself. And she decided that not only does she want to believe Scott, but she wants to renew her own belief and something that she felt so strongly about as a child. I feel like that would have just been a more solid reason for her to not only dive into this relationship, but you're about to become Mrs. You're going to be Mrs. Claus. She needs to own that. And she didn't have enough of a reason to want to do it. Final thoughts on the movie? Um, I don't think that this was a case of Hollywood didn't have a fresh idea and they were just trying to reboot something that they already had an audience for. Um, 
I think that this is a great sequel. I think that they expanded upon what we already knew from the first one. And I'm not going to say made it better, but they took what they knew. They took what we knew and they ran with it. I don't think that anything was too far out of left field. I think that they waited a good amount of time to release the sequel and that eight years of Scott growing into his role compounded with Charlie getting older and the growing pains that he's experienced. I think that that was certainly worth doing. And I think that they told a good story, a great story actually based on those characters and their relationships. I actually think that the story was so good up until the debacle of the third act, once they get to the North Pole, I would have gone out on the limb and said that this sequel was as good as Home Alone 2. Because of the third act, it's not. But I I still think it's a very strong sequel, and I like it, and it certainly didn't destroy the first one for me. Yeah, it's not as good as the first, but it's still fun. I think a lot of that is in... I think a lot of that is due to Toy Santa. Um, you know, there are some clumsy things about it, like the Hanna-Barbera sound effects I think you could have done without. I th- I wish that we would have saw more of Charlie and his half-sister Lucy bonding. I feel like that kind of happens fast. Um, but I think Tim Allen, I mean, th- stamp him. He's the greatest Santa Claus of all time. Um, I think the sets are great. I think the costumes are great. I think the score is great. I think the story is good. It makes sense for this universe that we live in where Scott Calvin is Santa Claus. Um, and it's just fun, right? It's just, it's innocent and it's fun. Um, do I wish I had been watching this uh, since the movie came out? Yes, I do. Do I feel like I've missed out on a great movie? Yes, I do. I kind of wish that I would have given this more of a chance. And I I will tell you now that this will undoubtedly end up in my rotation of holiday staples. For sure. But with that being said, being that we came into it later in life, the jokes still hold. This is also one of those films where it's like you appreciate some of it as a kid and you find it funny as a kid. But there are jokes that are flying over your head and you're going to catch those jokes now. And they're right. fantastic. And I think that's why the movie holds up. For sure. Other than a couple of pop culture references, I do think that the film holds up. But they're forgivable. There's nothing that is so incredibly dated where it's like, oh, gosh, that doesn't stand up anymore. Correct. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. You can also email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the Santa Claus 2. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney. And when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. 
Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney, and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, get in touch with me through any of our social media channels, or you can email me at j.zolezzi. That's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. The child, the asset, has a name. I don't want to say the name on the show just in case people have not caught up with this week's episode of The Mandalorian. What I will say about it is that unlike people on Twitter and Facebook, who must have a great life, mind you, if this is your <laughs> biggest problem, um, this did not ruin the series for me. I think that if we lived through Jar Jar Binks, <laughs> we can live through this name, which honestly, I don't really mind. I don't either. I actually like it better than to continue referring to him as the child because that's what Favreau wants, right? He wants everybody saying the child. I prefer Baby Yoda. So if we can just have a name, that's great. Also, love Rosario Dawson. This was a great episode this week. Absolutely great episode. Almost as great as this bit of news. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that a friend of ours, Lisa Donato Glasner from the Castle Run, had launched an initiative to do something for another friend, Lou Mangiello, who recently lost his mom, and she wanted to raise $10,000 to sponsor a family to send to Disney through the Dream Team project with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Which is a cause that is very near and dear to Lou. Right. He's Lou, granted so many wishes over the year through WDW Radio. Yeah, through the running team and with his wife, Deanna. They didn't grant one. They didn't grant two. They didn't grant three. They didn't grant four. They had granted five wishes. And they were very close to granting six. And they had been close for a long time. And it was announced this past Sunday, that they had raised enough money to sponsor a sixth family. $60,000 to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Absolutely unbelievable. And I know that we had talked about it on the show. We had shared the fundraiser link on our social media. But I did feel that that was worth... And there's, they're still taking donations. But I felt that that was worth mentioning because that is such a special thing done by a very special person for a very special person. No, and in in the midst of such a dark year, it is and such a dark time for our friend, it's so nice that there was something positive to come out of it. So uh, today, when this episode drops, is Giving Tuesday. Um, so if you are interested in donating, um, the link is pinned to the top of our Facebook page and to the top of our Twitter. So if you're interested, you can go to at Monoreal Radio on Facebook and Twitter and you'll see the link right there. 
Thank you guys for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review to us on your, or a review of us, review us please, uh, on your podcast platform of choice. Follow us on all of that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monorail Radio. And of course, monorailradio.com, where you have links to all of the social media as well as the email address and all of the places you can find the podcast. We will be back next week to review the Santa Claus 3, the escape clause. I hope it doesn't suck. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.